The Jason Cabinets Experience is sponsored by Cabinets HR. Cabinets HR delivers HR to companies with 49 or fewer people across the United States with our platform that automates HR products and services while giving you access to a dedicated HR business partner for more complicated HR challenges. Small business loses an estimated $10,000 per employee per year because of unreliable HR. Small business owners are spending an average of 25% of the time at HR, time that would be better spent taking care of their people, their customers, and building their business. Cavernous HR saves small business owners time and money on, on their HR. Sign up at www.cavernousHR.com or email me at jasoncavernous at cavernousHR.com to learn more. Cavernous HR, focus on your business. We've got your HR. This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Our guest today is Levi Reed. This is Levi's second time on the podcast. And he's here in the role as the managing director of Founders Institute Seattle. So I'm going to turn over to Levi so you can give a, a quick catch up what he's been up to. Thanks, Jason. Um, happy to be back. It was a lot of fun the first time. Uh, so like you said, um, I'm taking over this year's managing director for the Seattle chapter of Founder Institute. We'll be launching our next cohort on June 8th. So I'm very excited about that. We've actually got an event coming up for anyone in Seattle, um, any founders in Seattle on April 5th, which I believe is a Wednesday at 6 p.m. We're going to be hosting a panel discussion with some local investors about raising money in Seattle. Um, so we're pretty excited about that. Um, yeah, so uh, we'll be kicking that off, um, the, the cohort kicking off uh, June 8th, um, going through September 14th, so it's a 14-week program. And um, this will be my first time at the helm, um, taking over from Jeremy Zaretsky, so um, we'll, see, uh, we'll see how it goes. should be fun. So first, Levi, cheers. Cheers. Last time me and Levi did this, we were drinking some bourbon, and, we, and Levi's going to grade these bourbons that we have later on. Oh, I am? Okay. Yeah, your first, second, and third place results. All right, sounds good. So you, you're also going to be starting your own company pretty soon, or doing some consulting too pretty soon. Can you talk about that? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I, I actually used to do marketing consulting many years ago, um, and that's actually how I got my start in the industry. Um, coming out of government, I did a lot of uh, inbound and content and then um, that led me to do my MBA at Asade in Barcelona. Um, started working with Amazon and with startups there. Ended up moving out to Seattle after that. And, and uh, for the past 10 years or so, I've been doing product marketing, leading product marketing teams at Amazon, at some other companies, some startups, um, doing a lot of go-to-market work. So what I'm hoping to focus on over the next few months is working with some early to mid-stage companies um, with a focus on uh, launching new products and new services. Um, given my background, likely primarily orbiting the e-commerce space. So meaning not just consumer goods, but also um, services, products, SaaS, anything kind of in the e-commerce, seller support, e-com enablement kind of space. 
Um, so I'm really looking forward to, uh, to taking that adventure and, um, longer term looking to kind of, you know, move more, more into, uh, the early stage venture space. My personal passion is working with underrepresented founders, um, supporting really innovative companies with an impact focus. And so, uh, I'm looking to leverage that skill set and that, that area of passion and, and, you know, build something out of that. So I have a number of companies and really, really fantastic founders that I'm working with right now. And I'm excited to devote a lot more time to that over the next few months. Levi, can you give us your definition of underrepresented founders? Yeah. So in my case, what I'm looking at is, um, so ethnic minorities, so black, Latino, Native American, et cetera, um, transgender and queer founders and, uh, women, uh, while women are not really a minority, um, <laughs> unfortunately, when it comes to, uh, startups, uh, women founders, um, are really under supported. Um, last year, about 1.9% of VC dollars went to women founding teams, which is actually down from the previous year from 2.1%. And that's despite the fact that companies founded by women on average return 68% more than companies founded that, entirely that, by men. That always drives me crazy. Like it's really, really nice. To me, like if you're, if, uh, um, so I'll say this correctly. If you're an investor, right, even you like, you hate women, right? Hate females, hate whatever. Just for a business case, right? Like you make more money when you invest in females. Yeah, I never understood that. It is it is a little mind boggling. I, I think what it comes down to, you know, I, I talk a lot about um, institutional bias, institutional prejudice, and what I mean by that is the factors that create these 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 underrepresentations, right? These dichotomies that aren't necessarily tied to one individual's intentional behavior, but more a system of practices. So we look at, for example, um, we know that if you can get more um, investors from these communities with these backgrounds into play, then you see more money being routed towards, you know, these underrepresented founders. But what are the barriers to those investors? Well, to be, be a successful VC, to, to raise your first fund, typically you need to show some kind of a track record of successful investments. To have a track record of successful investments, you need to have had money to deploy, right? So you have kind of this chicken and egg problem where you have people coming from these underrepresented communities, which are often less wealthy communities, right? Um, those folks aren't necessarily able to make those kinds of investments. They're not able to develop that kind of a track record, even though they may be perfectly capable of being a successful investor. So you see that underrepresentation happening in the investor space. And obviously I'm grossly oversimplifying the case here. That's just one example of, of one of these kinds of barriers. Um, but you have, you know, you have fewer investors coming from these different backgrounds. So you have fewer people with the perspective to fully appreciate where underrepresented founders are coming from. And so you have these kinds of biases becoming sort of self-perpetuating. Um, across the board. And I could talk about that for hours, so I'll stop there. But I do think it's a significant problem. And it has knock on effects, not only in the fact that, you know, investors and, and LPs are missing out on areas of potential, you know, uh, outstanding returns, but also the fact that by failing to support folks with these different backgrounds and different perspectives, we're failing to ultimately support ideas that are coming from different perspectives and different backgrounds, right? Some of those ideas might benefit some of these populations. Some of them might be just new and interesting and innovative takes on existing problems. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're failing to take full advantage of the entire spectrum of the human capacity for innovation. And I think if you look at the state of the world today in particular, what with crises from climate change to here in Seattle homelessness, um, to pandemics like COVID-19, we're not in a place where we can afford to be letting any of these kinds of incredibly valuable resources to be, to be, to be neglecting any area of human innovation and capacity in any way. We need to be taking full advantage. If there's someone who's willing to step up to the plate with an idea and take on the incredible burden of being a founder, um, 
we, we need to be supporting those people. We need to be vetting those ideas without regard to the color of a person's skin or, or their gender or, or the wealth that their family has or any, one of any number of other categories that really have no bearing whatsoever on their ability to start a company. So, Levi, let me ask you this. So, usually VCs are, are like the money comes in you know, San Francisco, Seattle, Austin, New York City, but also like the VC hubs. Sure. So, I know represented founders be expanded to someone who's like, we'll say, we'll say, you know, Little Rock, Arkansas, or like, you know, Mesquite, Texas, where sure. there's no VC. So, that'd be, regardless of race, gender, that also be expanded to the underrepresented founder? That's a great point. Um, part of the problem here is, is making that definition, right? Um, if you're if you're intentionally trying to deploy capital to support underrepresented founders as a corrective to the existing paradigm, how do you how do you draw that definition, right? And I, I think that's why you'll see that a lot of um, investors with that specific mindset and target shy away from making clear definitions of what qualifies as an underrepresented founder, which is something that I'm actually pretty supportive of. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I would argue that. For example, you know our, our classic definition of an underrepresented founder is does does not typically include white men, for example, right? Um, but I would argue that somebody coming, for example, from you know a white man coming from a, an extremely poor background and let's say the hinterlands of Appalachia probably has um, a substantially different perspective compared to say. Uh, wealthy Latino man from, from, you know, uh, an urban environment who, who happened to grow up with, with in, in a more privileged environment. Um, and that's maybe a little counterintuitive, but then at the end of the day, you have to look at it as an investor or as a philanthropist or, you know, whatever your perspective is and say, well, you know, th there's a limit to how deep you can dig into somebody's background and the kinds of judgments you can draw. So at some point you have to draw a line and it's going to be imperfect. It's going to exclude people who should be included and it's going to include people who maybe don't quite meet your thesis. But ultimately you're, you're trying to capture the best picture that you can um, and, 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 and refine your, your targeting as much as possible so, so that you're to the greatest extent possible supporting the group you try to, you're trying to support. But I will say, and especially if you are a smaller investor, I think you have the luxury of doing this. The more that you can evaluate on a case-by-case -case basis, the, the the better the situation is going to be. Yeah. Yes. So today, um, Levi's going to deep dive on Kevin's HR for me. You know, basically, I'm, I'm trying to come one of his customers. And so some background on Kevin's HR, I've been doing it a couple of years. I think Levi, Levi, I'll agree. I've done a great job of being a social media presence, you know, branding and all that kind of stuff. But I'm, I'm feeling like, you know, make, making a version from the followers and podcast users and people know me to pay customer, right? So he's like, ask me questions. I'm going to show him all my stuff. Be very, very vulnerable here. Like, show him like I've done a marketing in the past, sales, all that kind of stuff, what I need help with, you know. Um, and let's go from there. I'm sure, sure everything he tells me will be able to help a lot of you out, too. Yeah, this, this should be fun. It'll be a bit of a speed run. Um, normally, we'd be doing this over the course of several weeks with... Um, some interviews and, and some research, but uh, we've worked together before. So yeah, should be interesting. Let's get started. Yeah, so we wanna go, go over first. We wanna show you first. Anything well, particular? Or? Um, why don't we talk about what you're currently doing as, okay. as far as your marketing? Um, obviously you've got the website, you have this podcast, you have some outreach you're doing, you've got a pretty substantial social media following, but maybe you can walk me through some of the channels that you're on and, yeah, and kind so, of your um, thinking behind it. So like you said, I have a pretty big uh, LinkedIn LinkedIn following, like 20,000 people on LinkedIn. And, and one thing I did with my LinkedIn is I was using Sales Navigator. So Sales Navigator, it's, it's good and bad, right? Like they say you can do like Boolean searches, they're not that accurate, right? Like, like I did a Boolean search. So Kevin's HR would do HR companies 49 or fewer people. So I did Boolean search, broken down my state, 49 or fewer people, you know, that kind of stuff, right? 
of that, 11,000 people came back as small business owners. But when I did the research, like detailed research stuff, probably only 6,500 are actually like 49 or below. Like, like a lot of them were like shut down the small business like two, three years ago or it's over 50, you know. So that was a painful to go to, right? And so then I took that. And upload, uploaded all those leads to the sales platform called close.com. And close.com is like a like hotspot for startups, right? Okay. So you got a basic CRM here? Yeah, so um, I'll go to this one right here, uh, New York City. So if you click on the name, you can, you can pull up their um, the LinkedIn, you can do Google searches, the website, all that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, you have the phone number, you can call people on here, all that kind of stuff. Okay. And one thing I really like about it is like... Um, it tracks your outreach as well? Yeah. Um, Great. Call. Oh, let me go back so one quick note here, yes. um, uh, when it comes to tracking open rates on emails, you want to always be careful with that. Now, increasingly, um, email service providers. Yeah, I've been hearing that. Yeah, yeah, they'll they'll thirty percent, really not thirty percent. Right, right. So they're they're opening emails in advance automatically to check the contents, and often that'll actually trigger as an as an open on your end. So I, I would recommend, you know, unless you make a major change to the software that you're using, you can you can track open rates. Um, as, as a comparative point, right? If your open rates go up by a certain amount, then you can reasonably assume that people are opening your emails more frequently. But the number itself, I wouldn't necessarily trust in absolute terms. A 70% open rate does not necessarily yeah. mean that 70% of your recipients yeah. are actually opening I mean, email. If I was Neil Patel or Gary Vee, yeah, I, 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 I believe it, but me, no. <laughs> and one thing I like about this, of course, keeping what you just said in, in, in this dance, yeah. like these little envelopes, it shows that, that someone opened the email, right? Sure. So. Like example, you sent email secrets five times and no, there's no open envelopes. Well, maybe I don't follow up, right? Cause they're not paying attention, but maybe they do, maybe I follow sure. up with them, you know? So it sounds like, um, so you, you've got the podcast that you're doing, you, you push that out over a number of channels mm -hmm. and then your, it sounds like LinkedIn is your primary yeah. channel for, for your outbound work. So you're, yeah. you're directly searching for people, yeah. you're finding their information, then you're using close.com as your CRM mm -hmm. to track your outreach. Yeah. So that's more of a sales process. Yeah. Um, are you doing any kind of uh, paid media, like advertising, anything like no, that? No, not yet. That's post? one idea one of my people okay. said we should start doing, like uh, maybe something small, like either LinkedIn or Instagram, something like that. That's, that's LinkedIn can be idea. quite expensive. And there's that's some things too, yeah. uh, I would dial in before necessarily going to LinkedIn, yeah. and we can get to that in a second. Um, but no, I, I actually... With the caveat, you know, I mentioned earlier, I, I cut my teeth in content and inbound, and that's where I tend to focus. Um, so I'm maybe a little bit biased, but I, when it comes to paid media, I'm, I'm a fan of being very thoughtful, very careful, and maybe not necessarily doing it first thing. Yeah. Um, I think it absolutely has its place. It can be super valuable, and we can talk about how, but uh, I, I actually think it's a very good idea that you're not. So let me, let me show you one more tour fast. So okay. I think everyone knows, like, uh, no, when you think you have to get people's emails right, LinkedIn is famous for not having no correct email, right? People say the cause email stuff or whatever. So I use this tool called Wizza, W-I-Z-A.co. And basically, according to them, they don't get the emails from LinkedIn or SalesNav, get it from someplace else, right? Okay. And so I use that to get to get the, the actual emails. Got it. And also, Close.com does a good job of providing emails too. So I try to like match 
So in my mind, the wizard and close.com emails match, then it's pretty it's probably a pretty reliable email. Uh, potentially. Yeah. Um, depends on if they're pulling from the same source, then yeah, you know, I didn't think about that. Yeah. One thing um, I like about Wizard, they say they don't proof on LinkedIn, right? But a lot of scrapers they say we proof on LinkedIn, like most people's LinkedIn emails are, are wrong as hell, right? So Right, right, sure. So what is uh what is a typical process look like for you end to end in terms of getting a lead you get on linkedin you're running a search you, you pull someone from there you enter them into close.com what what happens for you after that and then uh if i'm on the game you know one problem i've had in the past like losing momentum losing focus right so if everything is perfect award you know yeah per- perfect award. yeah ideal ideal I'll, I'll, let's say I'll, I'll i'll do a query on sales navigator or wherever you know for we'll say uh dallas texas right sure um Pull the pull those names. Go to Sales Navigator. Do a little you know, boolean search. Mm-hmm. Pull those people down, and then put it into the close.com or the wizard of the emails. Okay. And then after that, you know, have a, a email sequence I send, which I've changed too many times, right? Okay. And I send an email sequence, and then um, I'll look at the open rates. You know, like. So what is that? Let's back up for a second there. What does that email sequence look like? How many emails? How frequently are you sending? Uh, I've have one time as many as seven, which is you no know, too much. Right now, okay. I think it's five. I've done experimentation, like, you know, like send a total of seven, like, got it. Um, at close.com, they have like a sequence to follow. I've done that before. Like I've done like three days, three days, three days. I know four, seven, I've done okay. all over the place. Right. Got it. And one thing I, I failed to do is like, you no, know, they say do AB testing. Like I hate, I hate to sound lazy, but I mean, I have time to do AB testing. Right. I know that's not the right answer, you know, but no, that, that's fair. I mean, you, you're, you're one guy, you can't necessarily do everything, but have you tried any other channels like LinkedIn messages, cold calling, or are you sticking to just email? No, I need to do call, call calling. That's the next, that's all I need to do next. You haven't done cold no, calling no. and LinkedIn messages, not haven't done that either. Um, so I've done like sales navigator, but that's, that's, I hate to say it's crap, but like, for example, in mail, you mean like the, 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 no, the no, 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 sales navigator messaging. Oh, got it. Got it. Okay. The thing is like, I don't like, like post, we're both a sales navigator. I send you a message. And then like, you know, I, I just I get rid of it. You I lose all my messages. Cause I have time with like, yes. you know, well people like email me like, hey Jason, you know, I just saw this. I don't really take my sales navigator messages. I have no idea who it is or whatever, because everything's yeah. gone, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm I agree. I'm not a not a huge fan of of the sales nav messages. I do like LinkedIn messages though. We could talk about that a little yeah. bit too. I definitely do that better. Um Okay, so we got a few things that we can chat about here then. Um, I actually have a, a bit of software I might plug for you. I'm just starting out myself and I really like, but we can get to that in a second. Um, all right, cool. So let's talk about your ideal customer profile then for a minute. I okay. think that might be a good starting point. So that's your ICP. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned that you're doing these Boolean searches on LinkedIn SalesNav. Um, what are kind of the common criteria that they so, for what what defines your ideal customer? So the ideal customer would be somebody with company forty nine or fewer people. Uh, I'm sorry, how many? Forty nine or fewer people. Forty nine or fewer people. And um, they can't like they don't have to be a tech expert. They can't be scared of tech, right? Like they can't be like you know um, you have to print off all your handbooks. I don't want to, I don't want nothing in the cloud or. How do you determine that that they're not tech? Talk talk tech talk over. just talk to them. You know. Okay. Uh, stuff they're telling me like I had one customer who wanted me like print out all the handbooks to them. One person like didn't want to do digital signatures because you know they want anything a penny, you know, like okay. And also the they have to know HR is important, right? They have to realize you know HR is important, but they can't do it. You know, for example, on, on my pitch deck, I talk about a lady named Anna. She started a small business. She quickly grew. She knew she knew she, she knew she didn't need help with HR. 
I remember that exactly. Yeah. yeah. So like that, you know, like they know HR important, but they don't have time to do it, and they can't afford to pay an HR person. What about um any any geographic targets, revenue industries that you particularly focus on, or that you rule out? No, no, not rule out anything. Um, one thing I keep on going back and forth on, I need help with like so sometimes like man, I need to focus on Seattle, right? To you know validate everything, and plus like HR is different in different places. I don't have the time like though until yeah. the tech ready to like build products manually for every location in the United States, right? But again, it sounds like, man, maybe I need like go all across the United States to potentially get more customers and users, you know? So it's something I go back and forth too much. What would you say is your core value proposition to these customers? What differentiates you from another HR service provider? Um, so we're going to save them time and money on HR. Okay. Because our small business owners, according to the SBA, they lose like $10,000 per small business employee per year. And then it's estimated that small business owners like spend twenty five percent on HR related items. Okay, so I have two thoughts here um, as far as advice goes. Firstly, for the ICP, I would think about refining that a little bit more, like more niche down. Or- yeah, drill down a little bit more. So there's a concept, especially with B two B, where we we talk about establishing your beachhead market, mm-hmm. right? And based on what you've described with your ICP, I don't see that you have a beachhead market. Okay. And what that means, what I look for with with a business like yours in terms of identifying a beachhead market is I want to see um, a clearly defined, relatively small population, right, of potential customers. So, so that'd be based on industry or revenue or well, whatever. Well, it could be. And this is where, you know, we would have a longer conversation, right, to, to determine kind of what characteristics make sense. Mm-hmm. So the example I always like to use, you know, when, when somebody's thinking about their ideal customer, everybody always wants to think about the gender of the customer. Maybe not for B2B, but in consumer goods, for example. But the truth is the gender of your customer does not matter for as many things as people think it is. It's just an easy thing to track, right? With B2B, often industry is is the equivalent of that in my experience. Or for example, in e-commerce, you see people trying to target based on the vertical. The thing about e-commerce is people sell across many verticals. They sell across many industries. That's something that actually characterizes e-commerce retail. So industry is easy to track. It's easy to look at, but it does. it's not necessarily directly relevant to what you're doing. It may be, it may not be. You want to think about that. But what you're looking for with your beachhead market is a market that's relatively small, just big enough to be interesting to you, but it does not need to be the only market you play in. It's just where you get started, where you establish a foothold as a brand, right? And ideally, it's a market that has something relatively specific or unique about their needs with respect to your service. And their needs are ideally not being perfectly met by the incumbent service, right? And often that's because they're too big for a large service provider to really care about, right? It's not worth a large service provider in the space customizing their offering to these people's specific needs. So you come in and you say, look, you're smaller, I'm smaller. I'm going to build this product or this service that meets your needs much, much better than the incumbent service, right? And your goal, your North Star, and you might not necessarily get there and you don't need to, but but what you're kind of working towards is you want to become essentially the de facto service provider in your space for this industry, right? So when you find that specific industry, you want to get to the point where where your 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 service becomes a verb, right? Like, like we Google things now, we don't search for them. Um, so if you can get to this point where you, you've, you've developed a really customized service that's tailored to the specific group and you're able to narrowly define that group, then you can make an entry into that market typically much more effectively, right? Um, so what I like to see there is, is that, that level of specificity in your ICP. And this is something we can talk about later. I don't want to take up the whole podcast going into the detail there. Um, although if you have any specific questions, we can chat about it now. But, but thinking really, really specifically about that, I would recommend, um, I'm not sure 
Industry probably will make sense for you. We could talk about that later. I suspect revenue of the business will make a lot of sense. Obviously, there's going to be some correlation between the size of the business in terms of number of people as well as revenue. Um, but I think that could be something to uh, to think about as well. Another thing that you can think about looking at if you're not doing this already is doing a slightly deeper dive on the first names that come up and trying to see what it looks like in terms of what 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 they have for HR resources, right? You know, do they have any people associated with them on LinkedIn with with an HR related title? Um, and that might help you kind of understand a little bit more. I mean, if a business has 30, 40 people, they clearly have a need for some HR services. Yeah. If most of those people are on LinkedIn and you don't, you're not seeing a lot of HR professionals, that would yeah. strike me as probably a clear opportunity. My guess is that person, that business is very likely working with a PEO or some kind yeah. of service provider. Or they have like office manager, bookkeeper doing it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so you can come in and I, I imagine, you know, you can make a case to say, look, you know, it's been going okay now, but the first time you have some kind of, you know, harassment complaint or something, you're going to have a problem. But also, here's all this value I can bring. I can save you money. I can save you time. Um, so I, I would think about that with the ICP. Now, this connects really closely um, with the value proposition, right? Because your value proposition needs to be tailored to the specific people that you're trying to reach. You need to have something that's unique that, that attracts <coughs> that audience. Um, now saving time and money is, is obviously valuable, but I would not consider it a unique value proposition, right? Um, any kind of HR service, ultimately that's what I'm going to be looking for as a, as a, as a business owner. Right. Um, so I would think about, you know, what, what are the other options? What are the alternatives? So this is something I say to founders a lot when you're thinking about the competitive landscape, um, you know, uh, for founders who are developing something really innovative, new to the market, often they say, well, we don't really have any competitors because nobody's doing what we do. Well, it might be true that nobody's doing what you do, but you absolutely have competitors because people are using something right now. Yeah. Right. So I, I encourage founders to think in terms rather than thinking of competitors, think of alternatives. Yeah, the alternative is a big one. Exactly. Alternative might be like doing nothing. Exactly. The alternative might be doing nothing. So you look at and frequently it is right. And that's that's where it trips up some some first time founders because they go, well, I don't have competition. OK, that's fine. But you do have alternatives that you're competing with. Right. And that alternative doing nothing is almost always going to be an alternative. So think about, you know, what are the alternatives? Right. There's there's automated services. There's PEOs. You know, there's other people doing what you're doing, you know, independent contractors. There's fractional heads of HR. Right. What are the services that you're providing that are that are unique? What are, how are they different from those service providers and from those products? And when you look at how you're different, how does the, how do those differences map you to a particular value proposition to a particular audience? Right, because those differences will make you inappropriate for certain potential customers and more appropriate for other potential customers. So those are two things that I would focus on. Those are going to be the foundation of any kind of marketing or sales activity. What is the unique value you bring? What if, if I come to you and I say, well, why should I use you and not Jeffrey over here? Right. You need to be able to tell me why you're better for me. Maybe not better in absolute terms mm -hmm. than Jeffrey over here, but better for me specifically. Okay. Right. And where where this can get really valuable is when you're talking with a potential customer, a prospect or, or maybe writing a blog or whatever. And you can actually say to them. You know, if, if you meet these certain characteristics, I'm actually not the best option for you. You should go over here. If you meet these characteristics, I'm probably the best option for you and we should talk. Being able to say that truthfully builds tons of trust, right? Because then you're, you're giving your prospect the clear understanding that you're not in it just to make a sale no matter what. You're trying to find the best solution for them, even if that solution is not you, yeah. right? And that can be hugely valuable. Um, it's a great way to build a really strong reputation, being able to do that. Um, so th those are two places where I would start. Think through the ICP, refine that. And as you're doing that, think through your value proposition, come up with something that's really uniquely 
you unique to Cabinus HR, a value that Cabinus HR brings that no other HR provider realistically can like claim to. Does okay. that make sense? It makes a lot of sense, yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right, so um, let's see, where were we? So we were talking about this sales motion. So um, can we uh, can we take a look maybe, at, or maybe you can describe to yeah. me kind of how your emails work? Like what, what are sort of the areas of focus? What are you, what are you putting you in them? The email sequencing stuff? Yeah, excuse yeah. me, yeah, for your, your sales outreach, your cold outreach. So here's one I did on back on January 31st. Okay. So, of course, I tagged the stuff, what they said, and then um, I think up here shows when they started, like, like, yeah, like what day. I think all these went after three days after each one. Got it. Well, I like that it's short. I like that you've got that statistic in there about the lower cost. I think that's great. Um, one thing that you're going to do, you know, as you think about the your ICP and your value propositions we were just talking about, I'd recommend, you know, throwing something in here about that ICP that helps helps kind of demonstrate that you understand okay. them and you understand the program, the, their problems, right? With, with your initial outreach, you really want to orient it on that potential customer. You want to demonstrate that you deeply understand their pain point, what their problem is. And you want to think about less about the service you provide and think more about the value you provide or even better, the solution that you're providing, right? So what you're saying is like, you know, of course, you want to say personal stuff. What you're saying is like, we'll have like 100 people on list. Don't send them the same emails. Like personal, like each one of those hundred people, like personal like email sequence. I think you know there's always a balance between scale and personalization, right? You, you you can't necessarily go through and deeply personalize every single email. I might think about constructing a template and then, you know, having sort of placeholders where you do customize. So maybe there's a point where you reference the number of employees they have and that's customized or something along those lines. Maybe you have multiple templates and if they fall in one group, they get one template that's tweaked, and if they fall in another group, they get another template that's tweaked. You know. You want, to, you want to find opportunities okay. for efficiency, but more so that the, the general um, structure of the template should be focused on, okay. you should be oriented on the customer. The right? One thing I try to do too, you know, I try to use Google Alerts. Like I'll type my company's name, Google Alert for ABC Tone Company. And of course, a lot of companies are on the internet, right? But like ABC Towing might get a, an award for best playing company in, in Tacoma, right? Sure. I'll you know, send a message or I'll try my best to do stuff like that too, you know? Sure. So like like think of it this way. Let's say I'm I'm pitching you, right? And I'm I'm offering marketing services to try and expand your sales. I could send you a note that says, Hey Jason, um, you know, a lot of companies like yours, uh, you know, you need you need revenue to grow, right? Um, and it's a difficult environment out there, it's very competitive. Um, I'm reaching out to businesses like yours to offer my services. And I do these these marketing services, I do content development, and uh, I can help you with email template development. And I can improve your sales motion, help you with targeting, and help you craft a value proposition and ICP. Um, and I've got reasonable pricing, and you should talk to me about this. Okay, great. I've told you a little bit about what I do, but it's not really, it's not really that compelling, mm. right? Um, I've talked a lot about me. I haven't yeah. really talked about you that much. Yeah. And what if I reach out and I say, hey, Jason, um, you've got an HR business, and you're trying to do really good work for smaller businesses. But that means you need to reach out to a lot of different people. Um, in a really crowded space and you're dealing with a lot of competition. What you need is to be able to have a really unique value proposition that's super compelling. You need to be able to reach out and have people immediately go, that's that's what I need. This is this is this is what I'm gonna buy, right? This is the service that's for me. Um, you know, and then maybe I say something like uh I'm I if if you work with me, right, I can I can um 
together we can we can make that value proposition. We can increase your revenue substantially. Um, maybe I give you an example of some somebody else that I've worked with, right, or, or something that I've accomplished. But what I'm going to try and do with that outreach is, you know, I'm going to, I think better what I'm writing, but I'm going to try and uh, focus on you. I'm going to focus on what is your pain point, right? I'm, I'm going to understand that you're in a really crowded space. You need to stand out. Um, you need to grow your revenue, right? Obviously any business does, but you need to do so profitably and you probably don't have a ton of time, right? So rather than tell you that I can do content creation and I can do inbound and I can do this and that, I'm going to say, I'm going to help you grow your revenue. I'm going to help you develop the unique perspective that you need, figure out your targeting and maximize your efficiency, and I'm going to help you, help you grow your revenue as as efficiently and quickly as possible. So the first example is like feature-based, the second one is solution-based. Exactly, exactly. Um, this is something you'll see, it's really common with SaaS companies actually. Um, a lot of newer SaaS companies have a tendency to focus on the feature, and that can be really frustrating for the user because the user doesn't necessarily want to be an expert. In, in whatever it is you do, they want you to be the expert, right? So if you come to the table, you know, as an, as an HR expert, and you start rattling off a whole bunch of HR functions that, you know, to you are critical and important skills, but to the business owner, they, I don't even know what this, this means, right? I don't care. What I want is for you to come in and deal with this so I don't even have to think about it. I don't want to have to know what this means, right? So talk about what the end result is, right? What's the end solution? So if I come in and I say, look, I'm going to help you build an effective marketing program that gets you the revenue that you're looking for, gets you the leads you're looking for, and we're going to do it and it's going to be painless for you, right? That's a lot more compelling than me coming in and saying, look, I can do great content development, yeah. I can do great advertising, and I can do this and that and the other thing, right? So exactly what you said, solutions-based, keep it focused on the customer, keep it short. Um, there's a really great tool for doing exactly this called Lavender that I really like. Okay, Lavender, so, I've heard of yeah, them Yeah, startup themselves. Okay. Um, couple guys who run it, uh, they do great content online. I actually think they're a really good example of how to do really great content as okay. well. So you can check out what they I'll do on LinkedIn and what have you. Um, but the service is excellent. I've, I've used the, the tool myself. Yeah. I love it. It's fantastic. Um, so definitely recommend that. Um, I mean, and there's other solutions like it if yeah. something else works better for you. But, you know, they're, they're basically uh, uh, AI writing tools that help you kind of optimize okay. um, what you're doing. Um, things like, you know, using simpler language, keeping it shorter, keeping focus on the value you. proposition. Those like are almost literally means of sales and marketing tools. Like how do you personally yeah. like figure out which one to use and not use? Obviously you don't have time like A-B test every tool out there and figure it For out, sure. you know, like. I would say it's a combination of availability, right? What's right in front of me. That's why, that's one of the things I think when content marketing is done really well, you're, you're available, you're in front of people, right? Because you're a source of information and a source of value. So they're already going to you. Lavender is a great example there, right? They, they pop up on my LinkedIn feed because they're constantly the two founders and other people talking and recommending company like I am right now, right? We'll talk about it. So it shows up on, you know, when I'm online and the different spaces where I'm at, people I respect talk about it and use it. They've got a clear value proposition. It's simple what they talk about, right? They help me write better emails for sales. They help me write emails that get opened and read. Great, that's what I want an email to do. That's pretty simple. They don't need to tell me all the tools they use. They don't need to tell me what kind of natural language processing software they're using or how the features work. I don't care, right? What I care about is does it work? And you know, they, I have compelling evidence to suggest it does because they're demonstrating deep knowledge of the space with their content and people I respect are saying it works and they like it and they're using it and they're talking about it, right? So I think you know that kind of social proof, which you can create yourself using things like case studies, um, the constant availability, and the very clear value proposition. 
right? Is it the absolute best tool for what I need? I don't know. It might be, it might not be, but it's the best tool of the ones that I'm aware of. And I'm not going to go spend hours and hours and hours looking yeah. for another one if this one works and it does. So that's what I'm going to use. Okay. Right. So, you know, I think so. Um, Lambda has a lever I read seal of approval. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I, I really like it. Now that said, I'm a marketing guy and as a sales guy. So, you know, take that as you will. But, uh, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of it. Cool. Um, if anybody's looking, I think it's Try Lavender is the is the website, but and I should clarify, I have no relationship with this company. I just like the service. <laughs> That's the best testimony they're gonna get. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You should see people like it. I'm not the only one. Um, but yeah, you know, so so I think that, like I said, they they that's a that's a company that really exemplifies the strategy that I'm talking about, in addition to having a great tool to help you out. Um so we, you know, we talked a little bit about A/B testing. I, it's totally understandable that you don't have time for it. I think that's fine. I would still try and keep track of, you know, the campaigns that you're running and see how effective they are. Um, we talked a little bit about paid advertising earlier, and, and I'm going to mention that again here because I think it could be relevant. One of the things that I really like to use um, paid media for, especially in situations like this, is for testing, for optimizing your messaging, right? And the reason is because you can have a very high degree of control over your targeting when it comes to paid media, unlike with inbound where you're kind of casting a yeah. net, right? Um, and so what you can do is, let's say you're refining your ICP and you have a hypothesis that there is, in fact, a major difference between industries in terms of how they're going to respond to your value proposition. So you take industry A, you take that group, and you take industry B and you make a group. And then you run your, your messaging through advertising on both, right? So you, you, you build out a simple, let's say, a Google search ad, or maybe it's a LinkedIn ad, whatever. Um, you make sure that the value proposition is the same. If you have to change language to make it appropriate to the two industries, yeah. you do so, but you keep it as comparable as possible. Because mm -hmm. the key thing with testing is you want to test one variable at a time, mm -hmm. right? Unless you're doing multivariate testing, but that's more complicated than you're likely to get into here. Um, so you're testing one variable at a time, and the variable is the audience. You're testing the same value proposition. So you run that for a few weeks and you see, do you get better results with one than the other? And then what you can do, let's say there is a clear distinction between them. If there isn't, run the test again with a different value proposition, see what happens. Um, but let's say there is a clear distinction, then what you can do is you can make the reasonable assumption Let's say value proposition performs much better with group A than with group B. You can say, okay, this value proposition works better with group A than group B. Now, if you really want to test it, test it on some different groups. And if it continues to hold true, then maybe value, your value proposition, right? If, if uh, or I'm sorry, try testing different value propositions on the two groups. If it if if the the same group is still optimized, then maybe that's just a better group for you, and the value proposition isn't that material. But let's assume it's the value proposition. Then you can take it and you can say, okay, I'm going to use the same value prop, and I'm going to put in my email subject lines. Maybe I'm going to do a podcast around it, right? I'm going to incorporate it into my other content on the assumption that it's superior for this particular group, right? And then try to target that group. So my point is that. You can use that highly refined targeting to test assumptions about messaging for particular groups. Then you can take what you learn from that test and you can apply it to your other channels. It doesn't have to just live with paid media. Um, that said, you know, in general, be careful with paid media, especially LinkedIn. It's quite yeah. expensive. You don't want to, you know, burn through all your cash doing that. Um, and what's especially, your take, what's your take on Facebook ads now? I feel like a lot of people like like pretty much like do do those anymore. I uh, I have to confess, I'm I really don't have a ton of expertise in that space. Yeah. Um, I don't use Facebook very much at all. Uh, either professionally or personally. So I'm, I'm really not certain. Um, if I were going to get involved in that space, I, I would probably be prioritizing, um, 
typically, you know, for kind of my line of work, we'd be looking at like consumer products. And typically in that space, I'm going to be looking more at Instagram, maybe even TikTok. Um, All of that said, paid media is really not my area of expertise. Um, My my interest in it is primarily for testing and optimization. Beyond that, if I'm working with a client who really wants to get deeply into paid media, I'm going to refer them to to one of the experts I know who really has a much better expertise in that space than I do, Um, you know, and then work with that person. Um, the other thing that you can think about with paid media though, with respect to especially something like what you're doing. So earlier, um, you, you mentioned that you let, you want to target people who appreciate the value of uh, HR. I would flip that slightly and say, maybe you can make people appreciate HR, right? You're already heavily invested in inbound and content. You're putting all this time and effort into a podcast like this one. That can be a really important demand gen tool, right? By helping people understand why HR matters, why they should care about it, right? For a lot of people, HR is a vitamin. It's not a painkiller. And people are much more motivated to take a painkiller than a vitamin, right? It's a good way to put it. So what you can do, I'm I'm stealing that terminology, but I love it. It's it's really, it's really useful. Um, what you can do through your content is help them understand, like, here's why HR is important in ways that you might not have thought about. Here's how it affects your business in ways you might have not have thought about. If you're not doing your HR correctly, here's the ways it might be harming you invisibly and you don't even know, right? Here's how doing HR correctly could help you save substantially on costs, right? If you have high employee turnover, for example, I mean, you know, some clear potential benefits right there. If you have case studies, you put those case studies forward. We invest in that content, that education, right? And it does two things. It's it's a demand gen tool, right? It's helping people understand the value of the service that you're providing and why it's important. Um, but it's also establishing you as an expert, right? With deep expertise in the space, which helps build trust. And that's super important. So to get back to the paid media piece, um, I would, if you decide to explore that space, I would encourage you to think about paid media as an option, not just to drive traffic to an immediate conversion, right? To purchase your service, but also to drive traffic to that organic content, right? You start a blog, you run the podcast, you get people over there. The reason I like this in particular for B2B is because a B2B sale is typically complicated and uh, lengthy, right? Um, I think on average, uh, B2B software sale requires something like seven different decision makers to sign off right across the board before a a sale can actually be made. And that's including both small and large companies. Obviously in a large company, that number is much bigger. So it doesn't really make sense, you know, to have your website try and drive people directly to a conversion right off the bat because for a complicated um, transaction that typically has to be customized, that involves a, you know, a lengthy relationship and a huge amount of trust, very few people, if anyone, is going to get on your website, read through it and go, yeah, it's like, this guy looks good. I'm going to sign up and he's now my <laughs> HR partner, you know, and I'm going to pay thousands of dollars a year for it. And I've yeah. never even spoke to him. Right. So it's not really, really realistic to expect that. Now, that's not to say you don't want, you know, a path to conversion right on your website. That's not necessarily somebody's first time there. They might be going there because they've talked to you and they're not ready to purchase. Right. But it does mean that you want other options available. And so having that kind of organic content, that op- to opportunity for education means that you now have a pathway for people who have just landed there, who are curious and trying to learn to stay with you, to stay in, in kind of your sales funnel to some extent or your marketing funnel, but not necessarily be directed straight to a sale. Because if you direct those people straight to a sale, they're just going to bounce. Yeah. They're done. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that that's another use case that I like. So I, I, you know, just I guess what I'm saying is don't get too focused on paid media strictly as being a path to conversion. There's many other uses for it as well. Okay. Um, so, and, and that's true for pretty much everything in your marketing and sales toolbox, honestly. Yeah. Um, which is good, good to keep in mind, I think. 
Um, cool. Um, I've been talking a lot. Excuse me. No, that's fine. It's great. So, is there any any and you probably might anywhere I can take better use of what I do on social media or my podcast in a better way? I think like people say I do a great job on social media, podcast, whatever. My mind, I, I'm like a partisan, right? I, I've never taken the next step, you know. So sure. Any recommendations on that? Like somehow I need to convert all these followers, whatever. Like you know, maybe sure. I pay customers but like more eyeballs on the website, whatever case may be. You sure, know? sure. What's your thoughts on that? Well, on a tactical level, one thing I'd recommend, you know, we were just, before we started here, we were just doodling around on Facebook, or I'm sorry, LinkedIn a little bit. Um, I would I would do kind of a quick audit of all of your, uh, let's say, assets, right? So including your LinkedIn page, mm-hmm. YouTube page, whatever. Make sure stuff is cross-linked. So like right here, for example, you got subscribed to my newsletter. That's great. Um, having on that that on there is excellent but you know have have links to uh things like you know your youtube channel have that up and ready quick descriptor of what it is okay. throw it in your experiences section as well maybe okay. um make sure that everybody no matter what what a sort of part of your online presence someone has landed on they're able to access the rest of it and know what it is very easily okay. everything's cross-linked so basically everything's a link to something else or yeah i would i would recommend that right and so the final place that goes would be the website or well, I mean, that depends on your sales funnel, but almost probably yes, okay. right? Um, the, you want someone to end up at a place where they can they can do whatever you want them to do to make a purchase. So if you have services that you sell online that they can just independently engage with, then you want them to end up there. If your kind of final step in the online process is contacting you for a consultation, then you want them to end up there. And then I assume that's what it is. Um, so you want to route people there, but but you want to be conscious of where they're likely to be at each you know okay. stage in the process. Um, that's easier said than done. One thing that you can do as you're kind of building out this funnel and building out this this network is recruit you know friends, family, whomever. Um, if they fall within your ICP, amazing, but they don't necessarily have to. You want people though who are generally mostly ignorant of of the finer points of what you're doing, okay. and then ask them to walk through. Right? Hey, you've just landed on my LinkedIn page. Um, you're curious. You want to find out more. What do you do? Walk me through as you're doing it. Right? See what they click on. Ask them to narrate it resist the temptation to explain things or to clarify things or, or nudge them in any direction. You want them to behave as though they're a user. And you understand what you will almost certainly find is that things that seem incredibly obvious to you are deeply confusing to them or they don't even notice, right? Um, as a general rule of thumb, a some excellent UX researchers that I used to work with at Amazon told me that um, it's a good idea to try and get around eight people maximum to do this kind of testing and beyond that you're generally not going to see new insights okay uh that is not my personal experience i'm stealing that wholesale from some really talented researchers so take it or leave it um but i think it's a helpful you know ballpark to have even even just a couple people if you yeah. can get to do that is really helpful just to have fresh eyes on it right as i'm sure you all know if you're if you're deeply embedded in something and deeply experienced with it it's very difficult to yeah, see it from very. you know a fresh point of view um but yeah, so you want to kind of link all that stuff together. And then what you want to do after you've kind of thought a little bit more about your ICP and your value proposition is make sure that that's flavoring pretty much everything you've got, right? Okay. When you talk about what it is you do, who you are, what your business is, who you're appealing to, you know, be really clear and crisp on that stuff. Make sure you're speaking to those people directly and you're using that value proposition. Now, sometimes this can be a little nerve wracking, um, especially for a younger business. There's always that temptation to say, no, nah, I don't want to close off these opportunities by narrowly focusing on this group. I want to, you know, be an opportunity for everyone. Or I know that I can actually provide great services to this larger population, right? Even though I'm focusing on this one. So I want to keep the door open there. 
I would caution you to try and resist that urge as much as possible because it waters down your message and it makes it less pointed. Um, it's better to be an extremely appealing, like the ideal option to a small group than a possible option for a large group. And I had a wonderful physical illustration of this not long ago. I was talking to a, a startup that I work with and they were saying how um, they've been doing a lot of conventions and conferences recently in their industry. And uh, they've gone to some really big industry leading conferences throughout North America recently. And they said, you know, we're actually thinking we're going to stop doing those. And I asked why. And they said, well, you know, yes, there's a ton of people there. There's a lot of industry leaders there and we can meet some interesting folks. But because it's such a big conference and all of the largest companies in our space are there, we're usually kind of relegated off to the side. We don't get as much traffic as we'd like, even though we get more traffic than we do at the smaller conferences. But the people who do come by, because everybody in the industry is there, only a tiny proportion of them are actually looking for what we do. And there's a ton of other people doing what we do, too. Whereas when we go to the really smaller, specialized conferences in specific niche areas relevant to what we do or in geographic areas, you know, relevant to us, we get much less traffic, but a way higher proportion of the people who come by are actually interested in what we're doing. Way, way more high quality leads. And we get better leads out of it. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, I think it's more obvious when you're at a conference and you're actually seeing all the people walk by, you're not, you don't get the benefit of that online, but the same thing is happening. Right. And those, those people are all walking by when you cast your net really wide and they're going, eh, well, you know, you blend into the background. They don't see you anymore. But when you really stand out, you're doing this one specific thing. People notice you, right. Even if it's to notice you and go, oh, that's not right for me, but you want to be noticed. That's, that's the really important thing. And you want to, you want to make sure that you click with those people for whom you're exactly the right service. Because this will have knock-on benefits too. You'll get better, higher quality leads and likely more of them the more specific you are, I mean, up to a point. But you're also most likely, you're going to provide better service to those people. So for an ongoing service like yours, where you're looking at, you know, AR, uh, you know, recurring revenue, um, you're likely going to have lower churn rate because you're going to be a much better solution for them. They're not going to want to leave. But you're also going to have much better word of mouth. And word of mouth is about the gold standard, yeah. right? When it, comes to, when it comes to marketing. That's where you see the most trust, you're not putting a lot of expense into it, right? It's essentially free. Um, and it's also incredibly effective. Um, it's also really valuable because the people who come in by word of mouth marketing, because they're getting a direct recommendation from someone who's actually using your service and making a decision based on that, they're also much less likely to churn. So not only are they higher value, they're also probably a much higher yeah, life exactly. cycle, lifetime value as exactly. well. And they're lower acquisition costs. It's just a win-win-win yeah. situation across the board. Um, so developing those kinds of... Uh, I like to call regenerative flywheels for acquisition, super, super valuable, right? And, and that all starts with a clear, specific, narrow ICP, ideal customer profile, and a clear, unique value proposition that's directly linked to that ICP. Everything comes from that. Your messaging, your positioning, right? It all flows from that. Your sales motion, your, your uh, marketing funnel, right? It all comes from that. But that, found, that foundation, that clarity is, is where you need to start. When doing like email sequencing or sending like emails in general, is there a limit where you say, okay, they have answered in four, five, seven, whatever it is, and stop emailing them so they're not going to pay? Or, do, or is that, yeah. or just follow up until they unsubscribe or tell you, leave the fuck alone? <laughs> I mean, you know, there's, there's all kinds of approaches here and all kinds of schools of thought. My preference is to do something on the order. Let's say you're starting with email, right? Um, maybe because it's easiest, maybe because you feel that's the best channel for your target audience. Um, I, I would recommend going for something like maybe three emails. Okay. But before giving up on that that group, 
I would try another channel, right? So maybe that's a cold call. Maybe it's a LinkedIn message. Maybe it's both, right? I would also stagger the cadence. So for example, you might start with the first email. You might follow up a couple days later, right? Because sometimes what happens is people look at the email, they're interested, but not interested enough to you know, actually do anything. So you follow up with the second email and that'll kind of click and get it over and you can hit them with two different uh, um, you know, uh, uh, subjects essentially, right? Um, or two different calls to action. Um, for example, the first one might be, you know, check out this relevant blog or something like that. And then the second one might be, hey, was that interesting to you? Would you be interested in setting up a call? Hypothetically, right? Um, then maybe you try the third one. Hey, you know, haven't heard, heard anything. Um, don't want to pester you, but is there any chance you'd be open to a conversation? Whatever, whatever path you try to take there. And then, you know, give it a few days. I would probably give it a bit of a longer break after that. And then try something else, try the LinkedIn message, try the cold call. Um, in general, I probably wouldn't do more than, this is really just a rough rule of thumb and everybody, everything is different, but or everybody's different, but uh, maybe five, six touch points at most. Okay. And then I would pause it. Now that said, I wouldn't necessarily consider it a dead lead there. Now, if somebody's unsubscribed or clearly indicated they're not interested, dead lead, move yeah. them out, right? But if not, especially if there's a suggestion, you know, we talked earlier about how you can't really rely on email opens as, as reliable, but you know, if you are seeing email opens, that does mean it's possible they're opening it. If you've got any tracking pixels on there or anything to check for, you know, scroll depth or, or click throughs or anything like that, especially if you see that the person's clicking through and going to visit your blog or whatever the call to action is, that's an interested lead. Mm -hmm. So if they're still not responding, right, maybe you put them kind of in cold storage for a while. Um, and then you follow up a few months later. And at that point, or maybe it's just a week or two later. At that point, I would think about possibly doing some kind of a promotion, some kind of a discount, some kind of an offer, something to create a little bit of urgency, right? Um, you don't want to be too, too blatant about it. And it's good to have a bit of a gap because what you don't want is a situation where people realize that they can just gain you, right? By yeah. waiting a week or two and, and then getting 10% off or whatever it is. Um, but ideally what you're doing is you're looking to see if there's any sign of interest, right? Not replying doesn't mean that they're not interested. If somebody isn't replying to you, but they're clicking on the CTAs and they're going to the blog and you're seeing that, yeah. that that's an interested party, right? Keep them in mind. Think about another channel, right? And this is something you can develop over time. You can start off with the bat. You can say, look, I'm going to do this three email series, then a LinkedIn message, then one more email, and then I'm calling it, right? Set that up, get that cadence running. Pardon me. And then, you know, after you've run through the first batch or the first batch has started to finish, um, you know, look at where you're at. You've got some unsubscribes. Those ones are dead. Get them out. Maybe you've got a few that have reached out. Great. You've gotten some appointments, some leads out of it. Fantastic. But then you're going to have a whole bunch in the middle. Mm -hmm. Look at what their interaction is. If there's zero interaction, maybe set them aside for a few months, follow up a little bit later. Maybe do a quick spot check. Check a few of the accounts. See if there's anything that appears to be in common about them, right? And then see if anybody else, have they have they had any interactions? Have they done anything? Have they clicked through? At this stage, if you want, you can develop even um, a rudimentary lead scoring model. And a lead scoring model at this stage, I mean, just a simple one, is, is basically assigning some kind of a value to people based on the characteristics that make you think how likely they are to convert ultimately. Um, so you might look at demographic characteristics. How, how closely do they match your ICP? And you might also look at behavioral characteristics. Have they engaged with you in any way? Have they done anything? So anyone, you know, your absolute gold standard is an inbound lead, someone who comes to you without being directly reached out to and expresses interest, filling out a form, signing up for your newsletter, or even better reaching out and setting up an appointment. 
gold standard, top of the line, drop everything else, talk to those people. And you would not believe, Jason, how many companies I have worked with who do not have a good process in place for taking care of inbound leads and don't even realize that they're getting them. It is phenomenal. But those those are your absolute most valuable, right? They've taken the energy, they've done the legwork to come to you, not the other way around. They're going to be the most interested, the most engaged, and also the lowest acquisition cost. So make sure you've got a plan in place for those folks. Um, next up are the people who, whom you've done some outreach to and they respond favorably and they get back to you. They talk to you, they set up an appointment, whatever, super valuable. Then your next here are going to be the people whom you've reached out to. They're not engaging with you directly, but they're clicking through, they're doing something, they're engaging indirectly, right? And then your last ones are the people who are not really engaging at all, but haven't fully opted out. Then you've got the people who have opted out. Those are kind of the broad buckets I would think about, right? And then you can get as complicated or as simple as you want here. If you use a platform like HubSpot, they've often got automated processes for lead scoring, right? Um, you can set up your own rules there. Um, and should you like do a different segmented email type based on those buckets? Um, so at that point, I would say it depends on your bandwidth, right? If you've got a marketing so, so manager. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so ideal world, yes, absolutely. In practice, maybe not. So in practice, maybe what you're doing is you're saying, okay, I'm making sure that those inbound leads, I'm getting back to them, I'm reaching out very quickly. I've got a 24 hour SLA. If I get an inbound lead, I'm getting back to them within 24 hours, come hell or high water, right? Um, and then kind of cascade down from there. Maybe the folks who are kind of engaged but aren't doing much, you put them in, you put them on ice, right? You put them in your CRM, you tag them some way. I'm gonna follow up with those guys later when I have some time or when I get a marketing manager on board. But for right now, I've got these inbound leads I need to follow up with. I don't have time for those guys right now. Maybe you you develop an email list later that you just send out whenever you come up with a new blog or a new uh, podcast episode and you just push it out to them. They can unsubscribe if they want, but if they seem like they've de demonstrated some engagement, you know, maybe they'll like that, maybe they'll appreciate it. Just make sure those people who have actually engaged with you, those top two tiers, they get the attention. You don't want a single one slipping through the cracks, right? I guess what you don't want to do, you don't want to send an email to someone, they open it up at nine in the morning and you call them at 902 in the morning, right? Mm. Don't, you don't want to do that, right? I wouldn't do that, especially because if, if you're basing it on opening an email, you don't know if they actually opened the email, right? Yeah, I gotta remember that. Um, so that would be kind of your third or fourth tier. Also, that's kind of creepy and stalky too. It is a little creepy, yeah. Um, but that's also your third or fourth tier, right? If it's just opening an email or even just clicking through what I'm talking about are the people who have like sent in an interest form, okay, right? Or the people who have signed up for your email newsletter, even though you didn't, you haven't reached out to them at all. You've done nothing. You don't recognize this, this email address. You don't recognize this person, right? You can even do something personal. I was working with uh, another piece of software that I'll, I'll plug in a second actually for you, but, um, you need to start uh, doing some affiliate marketing with these companies. I know, about. right? Seriously. No, I've just got tools I like. So th this one's, uh, it's called Aware. It's um, affiliated with a company called Revenue Zen, run by a guy named Alex Boyd, who is a just a great dude, honestly. Um, super, super helpful guy. And what I what I love about the, kind of the way he works is like, he's, he's how did he put it? I just read a post he had on LinkedIn the other day. He said um, that social selling is helping people publicly which I think is such a great point. Um, and so what, what Alex does is, is you know, you engage with him in any capacity. So, th so the other day, I, I, I had connected with him a while back. Um, he told me about Aware, but at the time it wasn't developed. It wasn't, it wasn't out yet, that he was still building it. Um, and so this is, this is a platform that basically bolts onto your LinkedIn and allows you to kind of look at a bunch of metrics that you would not have the have access to within LinkedIn. So engagement metrics, right? Who's engaging with your posts? In what way? You know, who are the top people engaging? And then looking at your own behavior. How many comments have you left and on whose profiles, right? Or on whose posts? Um, how many posts have you made? And then suggests actions for you, identifies potential leads, right? Really, really useful piece of software. 
So I was really curious about it. He was posting about it. I said, oh, look, you know, this, this thing I talked to them about a few months ago, it looks like it's up. I hadn't, I didn't engage with them a second time, but I went and I checked it out. I, I signed up for a, like a, an account. I got the, I got the process started to look at it. We're connected on LinkedIn. Uh, a little bit after that, a few hours later, he messaged me on LinkedIn. And he said, hey, did you just sign into, into Aware? And I said, yeah, I did, right? Because he remembered my email address. So we ended up having a chat about it. I'm now signed up for Aware. I've just started using it a week or so ago, and it's really cool. I'm not aware of another piece of software that does what, what, this, what this thing does. Um, you know, And so he, he makes his time available for free to help walk you through the platform, right? Um, so basically what he's doing is he's providing a huge amount of value up front with the goal of onboarding you efficiently and effectively so that you fall in love with the platform, right? With, with the service that he's providing and you stick with it. And that's brilliant because if Alex goes and puts two hours in, you know, upfront, and that's a generous estimate, um, to, to support me at no cost to help me onboard to the platform and get using it. And he's confident in software. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be using that way more effectively than if I had to figure it out myself. Right. And I'm way more likely to actually make it a part of my routine. Then I'm going to start to see the value of it. And then guess what? I'm not churning. I'm staying with it. Right. So I'm going to end up paying back that time in spades. Now, if he charged me up front for it, I'm way less likely to use it. Now there's business models where that makes sense. Right. And if you have limited time, then you might need to do that. Or if you're in a situation where your product isn't sticky enough to justify putting in that time. Right. But if it's something where you're really confident that based on the nature of the product and your confidence in the value of the product, that if someone fully appreciates the value and they're the right customer, they match your ICP and they start using it, and you know that they're going to keep using it, then yeah, it makes sense to invest that time and effort to get them on and, and keep them using it, right? Um, I lost the thread of what I was talking about. I forgot how we got no on this topic. <laughs> so so, so I want to go I want to go to like balancing tech and marketing a minute. But first I answer this, like suppose you have a, 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 a cold a call list, right? You, you don't know these people from Adam, but you have this list of phone numbers to call. Yeah. Should you like this? I know some people say this, go ahead and call, call them. You know, some people say, no, you got to warm up some kind of way. Is it a benefit that's this cold call someone that if they're your ICP, of course, but they don't know, you don't know them. You have the phone number, some kind of list you got, whatever the case may be. What's your take on that? Okay. Short answer. Yes. Um, longer answer. I've got another caveat, which is, you know, cold calling is an ancient art and science. Um, to me, it's a bit of a dark art, uh, in, in the sense that I don't fully understand the best way to do it. Um, it's very much a sales practice. Um, sales is not my forte. I work with sales folks. I respect them highly. I admire tremendously what great salespeople can accomplish. I am not a great salesperson. Um, so take, take this with a grain of salt. I would say that cold calling absolutely has a place in your repertoire of sales and marketing tactics. Um, I think it's, it's essential, frankly, I would also characterize it as something of a last resort. And what I mean by that is if you have any other means of connecting with that person, I would try and take it. So like maybe send them a Twitter DM or Instagram message or what the case well, may be. So let, let's go back to LinkedIn for a second. Um, and this is where a tool like aware actually adds a lot of value. If you've got, and, and obviously you're not going to do this for every lead cause this is really time consuming, right? But you can develop a process for this, um, where using LinkedIn as an example, you identify not just the companies that are your ICPs, but the individuals. So in your case with these smaller businesses, it's probably going to be the business owners or the CEOs, right? The heads of the business. So what you do is you, you start to engage with them to begin with, right? You identify those people, you set your target. Let's say you, you give yourself 20 in a week or something and you spend some time every day and you go through and you 
you know, maybe there's, there's some news about their company. You post about it. They posted something, you leave an interesting comment on it. Right. And not, not something, you know, anodyne or, or vague, yeah. but something really that shows that you read and, and appreciate it. Honestly, don't post. Congratulations, Bob, on your daughter's wedding <laughs> yesterday. I mean, you know, if his daughter got married and he posted about it, you, you could you could post about it. If he didn't post about it on LinkedIn, maybe don't mention anything. It's a little stalkery. Um, but, you know, just posting something like, oh, great point. Maybe not so much, right? Yeah. Say, oh, I, I love how you talk about, you know, the importance of, of revenue generation. But, you know, I would argue, too, that you, you also need to think about customer churn because it's really important, you know, and whatever, right? You, you <coughs> add some points, you engage in with them, you add to the conversation. If you feel it's relevant and suitable, you might even reshare their post, something like that. The point is that you're trying to get on their radar, right? You're trying to engage, you're demonstrating some expertise, but you're also demonstrating what is ideally a genuine interest in their business and what they're doing, right? I mean, this is your line of work. You're presumably yeah. interested. In these and one the thing I take advantage too, I just thought about pop my head on LinkedIn, like on your on your LinkedIn profile, I can click a bell every time you post something, I'll get notified. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So I just I have, have I just pop my head and start doing yep, that. Yeah, yeah, super useful tool. So you could do that. You know, you could cycle through different people every week, for example, or or you know whatever your time frame is. And then what you can do, then when you reach out, right, you're not, you're you're cold, but you're only kind of cold, mm -hmm. right? Ideally, they've seen your name, they kind of have yeah. a sense of who you are. Um, you know, so so it's a way to sort of warm up the lead. Now, that's obviously putting aside if you've got any kinds of connections in common or any way to reach out that way. Right. Obviously, take advantage of that yeah. if you can, you know, if it's possible. Um, now, if all else fails, there's no other way. I mean, not everybody's active on LinkedIn or on, and on other social media or if they are, they might be anonymous because it's something they've read it, whatever. Um, then, yeah, maybe maybe it's a cold call or maybe you look at it and you go, OK, I've got this top tier group of people that are absolutely perfect. I'm willing to put in extra time kind of curate and nurture that relationship before I make the initial outreach, right? Then I have this next tier where these are folks that I can support, I'd love to work with, but they're not my perfect ICP. They're not absolutely ideal. So I don't want to put as much time in. Could you go and nurture and do the same thing? Yes. Do you want to? Maybe not because time is a resource and it's limited, right? So maybe those folks you say, I'm just going to go do cold calls because my success rate is going to be lower. But when I, rel when, I, when I match my success rate to the amount of time that I have to put in, my investment equals out, right? Um, you know, so so you want to think about prioritizing in that way, right? Not everything needs to be perfectly optimized and, and done flawlessly. You don't have time for it. You need to be thinking about driving results as efficiently as possible, right? Um, so so that's that's kind of my general thought with cold calling. Now, don't ask me about how to do cold calling well, because like I said, I can I can share some thoughts. But honestly, again, this is one of those areas where I would find an expert in my network and I would refer you to that person for, for advice. All right. So next question, you know, like. With tech startups, as you like to know, the tech's way up here, marketing's down here, right? With me, it's been reverse, right? I've always challenged tech people. My marketing is like, no, we're supposed to be able to screw to events, right? And so I have a, a new tech team now. And, and well, first, first question is like, if your tech is like way behind your marketing, how do you how do you balance with that? And the second part, the mass plan of the company is like, from now to April 15th, you know, do the website, do the platform, get all like ready to go, do, be able to do like demos and other kind of stuff. And I go all out in marketing and sales and demoing from April 15th to May 15th. And they'll get as many customers or many something as we can. And then, you know, caveat and transit to a fundraise. So what's your thought process on how to do all that based on what you've been telling, saying? So in terms of balancing tech and marketing investment, I, I'm assuming you mean kind of like how much time and, and money and effort. Yeah, like, like, so I even like do, do marketing now if the, if the platform is not ready, you know? I mean, that's kind of a, that's a really a case by case situation, I would say. So I know some people say it doesn't matter if you have platform already, 
get you can still get sales, still get users, still get whatever you know. But like, well, I guess to that I would say, can you right? Yeah. If if you have a path where you feel that you can do that, like you don't want a situation where you're investing a ton of time into your marketing and sales, and then you have someone come up and go, "Cool, I'm convinced. You look super valuable. I'm ready to buy." And you go, "Oh." you can't yet i don't actually have a product you got to wait yeah. a month that person's not coming back no. right yeah. you've destroyed trust but also you've just totally destroyed the momentum in yeah. any sense of urgency so you don't want to be in that situation yeah. right i agree um now that's not necessarily to say that you can't do any kind of marketing maybe what you can do you know i've, I've worked with folks who have for example they're super passionate about a space they're trying to build out a product or a service in that space but in the interim you know they're blogging about it they're talking about it maybe they're meeting with people in the industry maybe they're doing a podcast right um I have a really brilliant guy that I, I worked with a while back who was in the cannabis industry. And uh, he was thinking about different types of cannabis startups that would build on tech platforms for uh, cannabis retailers. Um, while he was doing that, he was building out this miniature media empire, right? A newsletter and podcast and basically just interviewing folks in the industry. Um, ended up actually building out a company based entirely around that. But at the time, what we were discussing was, you know, if you if you have the opportunity to do that while you're building out some kind of a tech platform, you're not selling a product. And actually, that's kind of where your advantage is. You don't really have anything to sell. All you're trying to do is get attention. Yeah. And it, attention is really what marketing is all about. Right. And sales. Honestly, it's what a lot of business is about. But we don't need to get into the philosophy of it. Um, you know, so what, what he was doing was taking advantage of the situation where he didn't yet have a product to attract attention and build relationships. So he's building relationships with people in the industry. Um, he was using those relationships to create valuable and unique content, leveraging, you know, interviews with CEOs of cannabis companies and, and whatnot. Um, so this is interesting to people in the industry who were exactly his target audience. It's unique content. And he's building relationships with the people, you know, not just his readers, but, but the people he's interviewing as well, because it's fundamentally kind of flattering, right, to be asked to do that. Yeah. Um, so he had this huge value. Now, like I said, he ultimately translated that into a media company, which he actually exited successfully not that long ago. But had he moved forward with his original plan to build a tech product, he would have been ideally positioned to do so because he would have built up a trustworthy brand, right, that was known for adding interesting, unique content, adding value and adding expertise into this space. So he was already seen as someone trustworthy, expert, interesting and had relationships built up. He had valuable attention. Right. Um, so if you have a path to something like that, okay. and I would argue that you do, you personally, I mean, given, you know, your podcast and everything, then I would say leverage it. Right. You're not necessarily driving people to a sale, but you're adding value. You're adding interesting conversations. You're adding unique content and ideally add some, you know, I, I hate using this phrase, but for lack of a better term, some thought leadership around your area of expertise, right? Yeah, that's HR. what I try to do each podcast, some kind of way, you know. There you go. And so I, I definitely recommend that. And so that way, you know, you, you can attract some attention, you can get that built up. And then when you get to the point where you go, hey, by the way, audience, I now have this product or service or both, right? The audience feels that they have some sense of who you are, what you do, your your level of expertise. They have some trust built up because you've demonstrated that you know what you're talking about and you're adding value. So when you come forward with a product, it's kind of a natural extension of that. Okay. So I do think that there's a lot of value there. Now, that said, you know, when it comes to the balance of investment, what you really don't want is to put so much time in all that marketing as one person, time and money. You've built up some great trust. You've gotten some great attention. You've got a great reputation, great expertise, and you got a shitty product. Yeah. Right. Because then people are going to go using it. What the hell, right? And now you've just kind of blown all of that, right? So there is a balance. What's the saying? Um, a lipstick cover pig or something like that, or putting lipstick on oh, a pig or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It was lipstick on a pig is still a pig? I don't know, yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly, right? You don't you don't want crap. But but one of the things that you can leverage, and if you if you take this approach, right, is if you can build kind of that two way conversation with your audience 
and also just look at what content resonates with them, you can understand more deeply what it is they need and what they want. And then you can translate that into building the product. And this is actually on a personal note why I love product marketing so much because it's a function that really sits between the, the marketing roles and the product roles, as the name suggests. And done correctly, it gives you an opportunity to be sort of this two-way communication conduit between both of those disciplines, right? So you're in a situation where you can look at what marketing and sales are doing, what's working, what isn't, what do customers like, what do they dislike? Um, and ideally, in a really good organization, you're also working with customer support or customer success in the same way, right? That, that is all too rare, but that's like masterclass when you have that kind of connection going. Because those are the people who are seeing the problems, right? That, that's where customers are coming, they're getting frustrated. So as a product marketer, you in, you take all of those inputs and then you can go back to the product team and you can say, okay, here's what people like, here's what they dislike. And I can tell you from personal experience, it never, and I mean never, will align perfectly with what product thinks the product needs to be, yeah. right? Um, and sometimes they're happy about that and sometimes they're not so happy about that. But as a product marketer, it's your job to essentially influence without authority and um, get those customer needs communicated back to influence the feature roadmap, the product roadmap, whatever it is, right? So that you can ensure that the product that eventually comes through the pipeline is already pre-shaped, pre-adapted for the marketing strategy that's going to be deployed for the feature set that's going to be promoted to the customer, right? And you have that, that kind of really positive feedback loop through that two-way conduit. Now, that's a marked difference from how all this too, all too often goes, which is that the product is essentially envisioned in isolation based on some initial but static customer research and then deployed, and then it's given to marketing and sales, and marketing and sales have to go, okay, how do we sell this thing, right? Um, now, you as one individual can essentially kind of put on your product marketing hat and say, well, I'm doing this marketing, and I can go see, these are the articles people like, this is the information that people are interested in that makes them read and come back, and that means that these are these are the pain points. So I'm gonna take that back, and that's gonna inform my product. I'm gonna build a product that speaks to those specific pain points and offers a solution to what appears to be the problem for my readership, right? That's an assumption, but it's it's an assumption grounded in some some solid empirical evidence, I would argue. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so top three things I need to do, niche down on ICP. Yes. Um, redefine the value proposition. Yes, and it, that should be informed by your ICP. There's a third one, I think. Um, well, the third one I would say uh, is, is kind of a combination, but it's really taking your ICP and your value proposition and then thinking about what is your actual messaging and positioning okay, strategy, was, yeah. right? Um, and so I would, I would argue there's kind of a hierarchy there, right? Um, positioning is really important. There's a, a really good book on positioning actually by, I think the author's name is April Dunford. Um, it's called Obviously Awesome. Um, and basically it's, it's, it's one of these, I love books like this. She's very, um, she takes complex concepts and makes them feel simple. You, you read a chapter of this book and you go, well, that seems kind of obvious, actually. It's not obvious. She just makes it seem obvious. Very, very good writer. Um, but and, and deeply knowledgeable about the space. So it's this very actionable, practical little book. Um, and I say little in an admiring sense. She's taking a complicated topic and, and communicating it very simply, very succinctly, um, and in a, a very practical way. Um, so I highly recommend that book. Mm -hmm. It's It's you kind of get the sense that it, it sort of teaches you how to look at a product and then kind of how to look at it at a 90 degree angle, right? And think about, you know, what are the maybe the, the less obvious ways that this product can fit into a business or into a customer's life, right? And how do I think about positioning that? My silly example for this I always like to use is, you know, thinking about like Microsoft Excel, right? It's, it's a spreadsheet program. You can type in it. 
but you would never position Excel as a, as a, as a word processing program, yeah. right? Yeah, you can write in it, but it's not realistically, it doesn't have the feature set that you would look for, right? You're also not likely to really position it as a replacement for a calculator, even though it absolutely could be, mm-hmm. right? You're positioning it as a way to manipulate relatively complex data sets in a way that is much more convenient, flexible, and easy, right, than, than um, using a word processor or using a calculator or using any one of a, a number of other alternatives. Um, but, you know, I, I think positioning is, is a critical but often overlooked component because too frequently when companies go to market, they are operating on a set of assumptions about their product positioning and they've never really stress tested those assumptions. And sometimes frequently, um, thinking through your positioning carefully can be the difference between success or failure. It can also completely change your set of competitors or your set of alternatives, which is another reason why it's very valuable to think about depending on how you position it. So thanks for that great advice. I will come back to me in a minute. Now we'll go to your fundraising hat, right? So what do you think is the future of fundraising based on the economy, Silicon Valley bank failing, you know, like, you know, you know, I'm sure you see all these people in the post, like, Couple of people posted, I hate to bear, bear, bear bad news, but if you're raising a pre-seed round with all the economic stuff going, you're gonna need eight, eight round metrics. Other people post, you know what? Don't worry about this external noise, take care of your company and you'll be able to fundraise, right? So what's your, your take on all that stuff going on? I saw a, a, a meme um, a few days ago that had a, a gentleman with a kind of a scowl on his face and uh, the text above it said, I don't know what's going on in the world today and underneath it goes, but let me tell you what, what's going to happen in five years. And the caption on the image said the typical VC, um, which is tongue in cheek, but really cracked me up because it's not that far off the mark. And I have to admit that I'm occasionally included in that bucket as well. Um, I think the prognosticators that you see right now, I would take with a very, very large grain of salt. Um, I think, you know, very few of us have any more information than anyone else does. Um, as far as the impact that the SVB uh, run will have, I don't think anyone really can know for sure what that is. Yeah, it's not good. The degree to which it's not good, we have to see. Th- those events are still unfolding, right? Um, as a corollary to that, I'll say I, th- I don't think there's ever a perfect time to start a company or to raise money. I mean, sometimes you got to fundraise, you got to fundraise, right? You got to I mean, fundraise, you have to fundraise, exactly. Um, now, is it a great environment? No, it definitely isn't, right? I'm not going to pull your but, leg. But on one that thing one. I'll say, like, you know, you know, sometimes I call like fundraising HR, like, like if you're fundraising or you're looking for a job, right? I don't care how good the economy is or how bad it is, it's never easy to find a job, no, right? No, it's never easy. I don't care if that, whatever the case would be, people yeah. like hiring left or right. Yeah. You personally, for Jason Cabs, if you decide to find a job, right? Same with fundraising, I think. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure back in 2020 when they were throwing the money away left or foot, it was hard for some people to fundraise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I was working with some of those people and it absolutely was. Um, I think that there's, there's two two thoughts I have here. One is the negativity that we're seeing in the economy that's affecting the venture space. It's starting from the late stage and moving back, right? So the closer a company is to IPO, the more difficult it is I've for them to raise money, I've right? That. Um, and that's, you know, makes sense for a whole variety of economic reasons. Broadly, IPOs suck right now. So if you're going to be IPOing in the near term, that's a problem, right? You're very early stage. By the time you're ready for an exit, who knows what the economy is going to look like? Um, 
so that's one thing. So if you're at a very early stage, I'd say, yeah, you're still, you're still, it's still going to be harder, but, but it's not going to be the same as if you're, you know, a series E or something. The other thing that I would say, and this is very much my own opinion, um, I would flatter myself and say it's an educated opinion, but it's still an opinion. Um, I think that, you know, in the past few years, what we've seen are some pretty ridiculously inflated valuations. And combined with that, as a direct corollary with that, we've seen a huge, huge focus, a dramatically overstated focus, in my opinion, on growth at all costs. And I think that's why we've seen all of these massive duds of IPOs and exits in the past few years. Um, you know, the, 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 the big fad for, for SPACs as a means of kind of dodging the public markets to float um, is... I don't know if it's a symptom or a cause, but it's definitely tied up in that in that whole mess. We're seeing, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, deflating of the enthusiasm around SPACs right now, justifiably because some ridiculous proportion of the companies that went public with SPACs have either gone bankrupt or are trading below their initial flow value. Um, you know, and 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 that really, it feels painfully obvious to say this, but frankly, it was not at the time for me or anyone else. But, you know, when you look at growth at all costs and you ignore unit economics and operational profitability, yeah, you're probably not building a super successful company, right? Um, But uh, so what we're seeing now is in funding, right? Investors are increasingly looking more and more at whether the company has a path to profitability, to self-sustainability, right? Um, Can you get to a point where your burn rate is effectively zero, where you can at least be self-sustaining right and that's that's kind of where the focus is shifting now i would argue that that's a really good thing overall and economically because it means that we're looking at companies that actually have a path to viability financial viability which is really important um i would argue that that is more important than growth at all costs if you have a stable platform you can explore opportunities for growth but if your entire existence is built around this idea of growth at all costs that's where you fall into this trap of paid acquisition of decreasing margins increase or decreasing marginal utility right well i think i'm wrong what is it where i think it was casper or what come to casper alert casper's one they were basically like giving you 400 dollars to take their this has been off. a real problem in D2C, yeah, and that's why we're, see- we're seeing a lot of these D2C companies kind of imploding now because they they this term is so overused, but I'm going to say it anyway. They've been operating a little bit like a Ponzi scheme, <laughs> right? Um, because it's uh, I mean, who wouldn't take that deal? Give me four hundred dollars to use a mattress? Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, there was a there was a case study we had when I was in business school, and I can't remember the company. I was a vacuum cleaner company in in the UK, and they they ran a series of increasingly um, unbelievable uh, uh, sales promotions. It started off with with some kind of a discount on flights for vacation or something. And they basically, they, they looked at the results of the promotion. They sold massively more units, but very few people actually redeemed the promotion. So they kept ratcheting up the promotion. They got to a point where it was like an all expenses paid cruise or something ridiculous, like mass, multiples more than the cost of the vacuum cleaner. And what they thought was that they were operating in a linear environment, right? Where an incrementally increasing proportion of people would take advantage of the benefit as it grew, but the massive increase in the number of sales more than made up for it. What they didn't realize was that it wasn't, they weren't dealing with a linear environment. They were dealing with a threshold situation. And once they crossed the threshold of benefit, all of a sudden everybody wanted to take advantage of the benefit and it bankrupted the company and they went under. Um, But, uh, you know, I, I think in, in some of these situations, you, you see something a little bit similar where you have this um, this growth at all costs mentality and, and, and you get to a point where you, you reach a threshold of no return. You uh, your, 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 your numbers just no longer can make sense. It's, it's physically impossible. Um, the problem, too, is that when you've developed a new product 
or I'm sorry, a new product category or a new method of delivering the product such that it almost behaves like a new product category, right? Mail order mattresses, for example. Mattress is not a new product category. Mail order mattresses is very new, right? Um, if you're the first one into that market, you're doing two things at once. You're defining a new category while you're also trying to sell your specific product in that category. So if I come along as the second mover in that space and I'm, I'm, I'm engaging in paid acquisition as well, I have a much, much easier challenge in front of me. I don't have to explain to people all the benefits to get them to trust the model and the, the product category and get them to understand the process. And that's why a lot of times the first product is the one isn't the one who makes it right. right. All I need to do in that situation is I need all I need to do is say, okay, you know those guys? I'm like them, but cheaper. That's a much easier proposition. So actually, this is this is a drum I beat all the time, but I'm I feel very passionately about it. The two researchers who originally performed the research that can, and and coined the term first mover advantage about ten years later released another paper where they retracted the concept or rather clarified it, and they said it only applies in very specific situations in very specific industries. And in fact, in most cases, it's the second mover that does substantially better than the first mover. The first mover advantage, by and large, is mostly a myth. And most people don't realize this, but if you really, if you look at some of the most successful companies in tech today, none of them are the first movers in their space. They all had innovations, don't get me wrong. Take Amazon, for example, not the first e-commerce company, right? Now it had innovations around reducing friction in the buying process, improving trust through a, through a review process, right? There were lots of innovations there, but they were not the first e-commerce marketplace. Right. Same deal with Facebook, not the first uh, uh, social media platform. Google was not the first search engine. Microsoft was not the first computer company. Right. Um, so I think that that's something that's that's often kind of kind of lost. But but it really is very important. Um, I lost my thread again. <laughs> so, so Levi, I, I think you already said this, but can you go over who your, your, your ICP is or your, what you're doing? Oh, for me. Yeah. So. Um, Primarily uh, early stage companies, um, and my area of focus is new product and service launch. Um, my core area of expertise. So when you say early, you talk pre seed, A round, B I round. I would say anything up through about A. Yeah, yeah. pre seed um, to A. I yeah yeah pre seed through A. Um, maybe seed through A. Pre seed is very very early. I work with those founders, but um, you know at a stage like that, it's going to be more like casual advising. Um, you know, in in terms of kind of the types of services I'm providing. I think a very early pre-seed company or pre-revenue company, um, I'm likely not going to be able to benefit as much as the cost I would be to that company, if that makes sense. Um, if they're at a point where they can actually, excuse me, you know, act on what we develop, the strategies we work on and, and deploy some of those resources, which is more like seed stage, that's going to be a more valuable partnership. Happy to connect with pre-seed companies and pre-seed founders, have a conversation, develop a relationship. But in terms of actual clientele, probably about seed to series A. So would you be like um, a fractional product marketer for them or? I would say depending on what they're looking for, anything from kind of a launch go to market expert up to fractional CMO. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it really depends on the space. You know, for companies like, look, we're direct to consumer. We plan to lean really heavily on paid paid marketing. Can absolutely help with go to market. I can work with their paid marketing expert. I'm not going to be a good fractional CMO for that company. I'm just not going to have the skill set that they need. Right? Would you do? do would um, you do like a product cut launch for them? 
Say again. Sorry. Would you do like a product hunt launch, launch for them? Yeah. So, um, you know, working on basically thinking through a lot of what we just discussed, if to what ex- whatever extent they've done it, you know, thinking through what what is your your ICP, especially for B two B, what does your customer group look like, what are the demographics and psychographics, what kinds of things do we need to test, and that might be something the company does themselves, or that might be something I as a service I provide. We work together on it. Um, thinking through, you know, what are the what does the marketing funnel look like. What does your content strategy look like? Um, to what extent are you investing in inbound versus outbound? Um, and then a really big component of that, of course, is the positioning of the product, thinking through how that relates to your brand or helping to define the brand if you haven't done that yet. Um, and I don't mean in the sense of you know designing a logo or whatever, um, but more in the sense of thinking through what is your brand voice, right? What are, what are you promoting? What do you stand for? What kind of reputation do you want? Um, what kind of channels are you going to lean on based on who you're marketing to, what your product positioning is? So really kind of thinking through all of those those types of details. Um, to some extent, you know, I do enjoy a lot of execution as well. So things like drafting blog content, drafting inbound, um, doing podcasts, things like that. Um, but I find that with those companies, typically where I'm adding the most value and what they're most interested in is really more helping out with the the planning, the defining, the documentation, setting up the structure and, and getting them in a position where they can easily go find, you know, freelancers, part-time uh, uh, support, employees, um, interns to then go and execute on those plans, right? Okay. And sometimes I end up working with those people or their, you know, um, um, subcontractors or colleagues that I'm bringing in to help out with execution there. Um, but really just kind of helping get the company set up with a firm foundation to be ready for success when they go and launch a new product. Um, so do you have a certain number of customers that would be like your limit? Like you only do five, only do 10. It would really depend on the size of the customer okay. and what they're looking for. Right. If, if I'm working with a company that's looking to launch an entire product portfolio across multiple countries and, you know, they're doing a massive launch, that might be the only customer I have for a while. If I'm looking at someone who's like, look, we need to find an inbound strategy for this product. We've already got position. We've already got our ICP. I could, you know, be working with quite a few clients like that. So it's, it really depends on what the, what the customer is looking for. All right. So obviously this is going live right now. I'm pushing out the actual podcast April 2nd. Cool. Can you talk about anything going on with yourself or Founders Institute or anything during the month of April that you want to highlight? Yeah. Since it's be pushed out April Thanks. 2nd. Well, you know, we talked about the, the work that I'll be doing. So thank you for that opportunity, Jason. Um, I guess the other two things I'd mention, you know, I said it at the beginning, but um, we're going to be running that event on April 5th for Founder Institute. So it'll be um, fundraising in Seattle. I would say even if you're not in Seattle, it's going to be pretty interesting. We're going to have some great guests uh, or panelists, um, some investors from the area. Um, so definitely tune in for that. Um, I'll be sharing more information about that through LinkedIn. You can also find it. Um, the event will be going live in the next few days on um, fi.co, the Founder Institute website. Um, so folks can sign up there. And then the other thing I would mention, you know, I, I had talked earlier how a big area of focus for me is working with, in particular, underrepresented founders at an early stage. Um, you know, one of the things I'll be doing uh, in my work is, is offering deferred pricing models or equity and fee-based services to make my services more accessible um, to a lot of those types of companies. But I'm also just really interested in connecting with folks who are kind of working in that space. So people who are you know, in kind of ecosystem enablement, especially with a focus on underrepresented founders at the early stage. So you know, think like venture studios, accelerators, that kind of thing. Folks who are interested in that space, maybe looking to do something in that space in some way, whether it's investment or you know, building out um, you know, support in some way, like I said, like through an accelerator, something like that. I love connecting with people who have an interest in that space, who are working in that space. So I definitely encourage anyone um, you know, with, with that kind of interest, that kind of focus to reach out to me. I'd love to chat. Cool. So Levi, before you get out of here, any last minute advice or wisdom, anything you want to talk about? Think about your ICP, 
Think about your value proposition. Think about your positioning. Everything flows from those. Good advice. Thanks, Levi. <laughs> Levi, thanks for doing this for me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And to our listeners, thanks for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. Don't you know, pump it up